Well, friends, it's a real joy to be with you this morning. The last time I was here was Lockdown Sunday. Um, It was the last time I attended church for a very long time, and no doubt you were the same. So it's a very great privilege to be back with you uh, again today on Remembrance Sunday. I want to just say a brief word about how great it is to see the Boys' Brigade here. Uh, My son was a Queensman in his day, so uh, it's just a joy to see uh, these young men coming up uh, among you here, and, and I just wanted to pay tribute to them on this Remembrance Day. I know it's a big day for you in your calendar. So it's a great joy to be with you uh, this morning, and I want to share with you some, uh, some thoughts about the whole issue of identity. I want us to turn to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Before we read, um, I want just to pose a question to you. How do you think of yourself? How do you think of yourself? Or to put it in today's terms, how do you identify? How do you identify yourself? Well, let me give you a few pointers from my own experience. I identify, if I identify myself by what you see, then it might go something like this. I am in my 60s, early 60s, that's bad enough. I'm white. I'm the first son of a Lanarkshire miner, so I'm one of yours. I'm a South Lanarkshire boy from Les Mahago originally. I skate. I've worked for 39 years in the NHS, and I could tell you a whole stack of other things about myself, all of which are part of my identity. And we often do this when we meet people. You say, hi, uh, who are you? And what's the next thing? What do you do? It's a form of our identity, isn't it? Now, you've all got your own version of this. I'm a computer technician, I'm a designer, I'm an architect, I'm a buyer, I work in hospitality industry, I'm a teacher, whatever. But the issue of identity has become a lot more complicated than that in recent years, hasn't it? Because people today will argue that you have the right, indeed more than the right, the obligation, to choose your own identity and then to be praised for living up to it. One cultural commentator Charles Taylor calls this the age of authenticity. You choose your identity and then you live consistently with it and become a truly authentic person and nobody can criticise you for that identity choice. So you might be a selfish materialist or a sexual hedonist or just a plain grumpy old man. But if you have chosen your identity and you live consistently with that, then that's a good thing, regardless of what your identity looks like. It means you're not a phony. The worst thing to be in today's world is phony. This is the age of authenticity. Well, I imagine that most of you here today, maybe not all, but most, who are here today listening to me are a Christian, then you may be thinking about Christianity or observing Christianity. Where does that leave you? What should your identity look like as a Christian? And if you're not yet a Christian and you're looking at Christians and you're thinking, if I were to become a Christian, what would my identity be? What would it look like if I were to make that life choice? What does it mean to live authentically as a Christian? Well, the passage I want to bring you to today is one of many passages in the New Testament that helps us think that through. Because the New Testament is massively... Above, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's begin by thinking about the theology of our Christian identity. We need to begin this study by putting down some solid theological foundations. Verses 1 and 2 are strange. They just are. Since you have been raised with Christ. Well, that's already a bit strange, isn't it? Uh, We know that Christ has been raised. We celebrate that on another special Sunday, don't we? Easter Sunday. So we know that he's raised. But I, however, am standing before you with a knee that's needing replaced and asthma that is uncontrolled often. And I really find my body letting me down quite a bit. Don't yet have a resurrection body. It doesn't look much like a resurrection body to you, does it? And you'd be right. But the text assumes I have been raised with Christ. The text says, since you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. So we need to understand and unpack this phrase, since you have been raised with Christ. What does this mean? It seems to be telling Christians something very significant, doesn't it? To understand the phrase more fully then, we need to ask, where else have we seen it in the Bible? Where else could we go to get some further help with this? Well, the same concept is explained in greater detail and at greater length in another letter that Paul wrote, two letters before the one we have in our Bible, the letter to the Ephesians. We'll come back to Colossians in a minute, armed with some more information to help us understand uh, our phrase a little bit more fully. But let's go to Ephesians 1 verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The phrase heavenly realms is used five times by Paul in Ephesians. And it's only used in Ephesians, that phrase. So that's interesting. But what does it mean and how does it relate to Colossians 3 verse 1? Well, in Ephesians 1 verse 3, We have been blessed, says Paul, in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 19, the second half of that verse, he says, the power that is working out in our lives is the same power as God used to raise Jesus from the dead and seat him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. There's the phrase again, second half of 19. So the heavenly realms is, stay with me here, The heavenly realms is the dwelling place of God himself where Christ is seated this side of his return. Paul says more. Ephesians 2 verse 6. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. There's similar language to Colossians chapter 3. Well that's a little bit harder to get our heads around isn't it? It's pretty straightforward at one level when we're told that Christ has been seated with his heavenly father in the heavenly realms at the dwelling place of God. But what does it mean to say that I'm seated with him in the heavenly realms when, as I've already said, I'm standing here in Hamilton Baptist preaching to you this morning? Well, Paul tells us in chapter 3, verse 10, that God's intent in all that he has done 
was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So there's something bigger going on here. God's plan of redemption is going to be circulated and made known to the powers that be, presumably angels and maybe even demonic powers, in the cosmic world. There's a cosmic element to our faith. And Ephesians 6 verse 12 tells us about that. This is Remembrance Sunday. We remember battles. We remember wars. We remember that those who gave their lives to, to maintain and sustain and gain freedom for all of us. But Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 verse 12 there's something bigger going on. And it's a big battle. Our struggle, he says, is not against flesh and blood. Not against armies and evil despots on earth but against the rulers and against the authority and powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms so there's that phrase again we are engaged in a cosmic battle for hearts and minds which we shall see later but it's in the heavenly realms so if you think your opponents and your opposition as a Christian are limited to political forces here or secular atheists on social media here. Your vision's too small. You're not seeing the big picture. So what does all this mean for you and me today and for your identity as a Christian right now? Well, I want you to take a deep breath and I want to dive with you into a theological expression that will make you think, David, we're just ordinary folk for Hamilton and you're a boy for Lanarkshire what are you on about it's a phrase that you might not have heard before but it's really really important now especially do you know some people think church is boring and part of the reason why people think church is boring is that they never learn anything I mean school's boring when you're no learning isn't it especially when you get to that fourth year stage and you're ready for or sixth year stage you're ready for uni primary seven you're ready for the big school all of that stuff you get bored you know it already most of the time we get bored at church because we're hearing stuff we know already and that's down to the preacher really to work hard to understand make, helping to make it interesting to you so I'm going to use a phrase that will either make you want to leave or will prick up your ears in expectation can I have the next slide please in the heavenly realms is the spatial equivalent of inaugurated eschatology <laughs> see see I told you told you stay with me stay with me it'll be worth it it's the spatial equivalent of inaugurated eschatology so that's a big theological phrase but it's really 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 important and I need you to stay with me on this this strange phrase is really important for our Christian thinking and let's unpack it and start at the end we'll take the tail end first and work our way back eschatology first what's that that big fancy word that just means the end times we've sung about it already but lord tis for you for your coming we wait the sky not the grave is our goal that's eschatology that's what's going to happen in the future something that's happening in the future it is yet to happen the end times revelation is all about what is going to happen in the future it's eschatology so it's back to the future here because you see our faith as Christians is anchored as much in the future as it is in the past and we live between these two worlds we live between the world of the past what Christ has already done on the cross and the future what he will yet do when he returns again that's eschatology 
that future part. But we need to understand the past and the future to understand who we really are and what our identity is. So this phrase, inaugurated, spatial uh, inaugurated eschatology, is telling us that, that something about us is related to the future. But then it uses this word, inaugurated. And inaugurated eschatology tells us something remarkable. Some things that belong to the end of the age have invaded the present. They've begun now. They've already started. They've been inaugurated. Now, where do we hear the word inauguration usually in, in the political world? It's not a phrase we use in the UK in our political world, but it's a phrase that's used in the US, isn't it? So the, the, the president wins the election and becomes the president-elect, right? But he's not president yet, even although he's won. It's not like the UK, where the day after the general election, the prime minister's in number 10. There's a period of waiting, isn't there? And then there's the big inauguration day, isn't there? When he is inaugurated, and what everyone already knew was going to happen actually happens. Do you see? So inaugurated eschatology is telling us that what is going to happen in the future, something we know is going to happen in the future, is, is, is already happened now. For example, when we think about the end of the age, we think about God as the great judge, don't we? We think about the fact that there's going to be a judgment day and God will pass judgment on every human being. And he will pronounce his verdict on each one of us. Inaugurated eschatology says... You can hear that verdict now. You don't have to wait till then. The New Testament says that some people in this church, maybe even sitting beside you, have heard that verdict now already. And they've been declared not guilty now. How remarkable is that? So you don't have to wait until the final day to hear your verdict you can hear it now. That's inaugurated eschatology. That's the future now. You don't have to wait till the last day. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's what the gospel offers you. That's the hope that Jesus offers you. You don't have to worry about the verdict on the last day. You can hear it now. God looks at me, David Wiley, sinner that I am. He sees me through the lens of Jesus' work on the cross. And I've already received the not guilty verdict, even though we haven't got to the end of the age. So I don't need to worry about that final day. I know what I'm going to hear. Inaugurated eschatology. Here's another example. At the end of the age, Christians get resurrection bodies. We thought about that earlier. And, and we've also thought that there are quite a lot of people with hair the same colour as mine in this congregation. And as the new world, uh, as we get older, the new world starts to look a wee bit more attractive, doesn't it? You're not kind of looking forward to having a wee bit more now than you were when you were 14 or 15? I am. And, and so at, at a certain stage of life, at 81, you're going to look, you're going to say the words um, at the end of the Bible, even so come Lord Jesus. You're going to say that with a wee bit more enthusiasm than you might be when you're 15, because you say, when you're 15, I remember being 15, reading those words, saying, even so come Lord Jesus, but... Quite like to get married first, have a job, have a degree, get you know, get settled, live my life, and then you can come. Right? Yeah. Anybody relate to that? But I don't have my resurrection body yet. As I already said, it creaks, it wheezes, 
But the New Testament insists again and again that although we don't have the resurrection body yet, we've got something even more remarkable. We've got the deposit of the Holy Spirit living in us now. He is at home in us now. He makes his dwelling place with us now. That's inaugurated eschatology, do you see? Do you see why it's so important? So that's the time tension of living between now and not yet. That's the time tension. What about the location tension, the spatial bit? Where is Jesus now? He is in glory at the right hand of the Father. But, says Paul, I, as a Christian believer, am so identified with Christ, I'm so bound up with him, if that's where he is, that's where I am. I am in Christ. I am raised with Christ. Now we understand how that works when we say with Paul in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. We use that language. Paul uses that language and we use it, don't we? I am crucified with Christ. Now again, I wasn't on the cross. Jesus was. He was crucified for me in my place and substitution for me. But there is a sense in which I am so identified with Jesus through faith in him. I'm so identified with him and his death that what is true of him is also true of me. And what is true of him is always true of me now. I'm crucified with Christ. He was crucified for my sin. My son was crucified with him. Paul's already told us that in the glorious language of uh, Colossians 2, 9 to 16, earlier in the previous chapter. Remember, they didn't have chapter divisions in those days. So it was a straight run through. And so he says in verse 13 of chapter 2, God made you alive with Christ. And in Galatians 2, 20, Paul says, it's not me that lives. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if the life you live as a Christian is actually the life of Christ living in you now, let me ask you something. What's your address? What's your address? Well, the old Negro spiritual that my late father used to sing as part of a quartet that did tea meetings on a Saturday night, that's for those of you who remember what they were. Anybody under the age of 60 won't have a clue what I'm talking about. Ask your granny later. Used to sing this song. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Now we don't sing stuff like that anymore. And maybe there's a reason for that. But that Negro spiritual is telling us something significant. I don't belong here. And we've lost a lot of that kind of language in our singing and in our songs. And Negro spirituals were great for this because they came out of a position where people were oppressed. We know that, don't we? They, they, they were downtrodden. They were treated really badly. We know all of that. And so their only hope wasn't here, was it? Their hope was for a brighter future. Their, their hope was, was glory. That's what kept them going. So Paul says... You share the same address as Jesus. His home is your home. His location is your location. We are raised with Christ. 
And since that's the case, coming back to the passage here in Colossians 3, since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. Set your hearts on where you belong. Enjoy the things you enjoy at home. Home's a place where we go to to relax and be truly, authentically ourselves, isn't it? Where there are no masks, we don't need to put on any show, we're just, we chill. So this means chilling as a Christian. What does that look like? Set your hearts on things above. For you died, verse 3. That's your identity with Christ in his death. You died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. There's your identity with Christ in his life. So we're identified with Christ in his death. You died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You're identified with Christ in his life. You belong to the glory yet to come. You don't belong here, folks. We do not belong here. We're not made for this. We're made for glory. When he appears at the end of the age, Paul tells us that, you will appear with him. You will appear with him. All of you who are believers. Now, here's what's even more remarkable if we think about inaugurated eschatology. You've already been seen in heaven. John saw you in Revelation 7. He saw a great congregation that nobody could count. And he saw them all waving their palm branches. He saw them all in white robes. He saw them having a real party, praising the Lamb, singing, dancing, in joy, ecstasy, praising the Lamb. And if John had had one of those big um, drone cameras that they have at the football, you know, that, that goes way above it and you drop right down into that crowd, John would have seen you there. You've already been seen in heaven. You're, you're already there, do you see? So this is the theology of your Christian identity. And, and you notice it's all about Jesus. Isn't that just the way it should be for Christians? Your life is Christ's life. It's only in Christ that we understand who we really are. So that's the theology of your Christian identity. You'll be pleased to know that the next two points are slightly less demanding and slightly shorter. Second point. What about the aspects of your Christian identity? Because Paul now goes on to explain how this plays out in practice. Effectively, he says, that your identity as a Christian, as a Christian is experienced as a battle, as we've already seen, but it's fought on two fronts. Firstly, it's the battle for your mind, and secondly, it's the battle for your heart. Now, this rings true for us, doesn't it? The identity politics of our day Folks, let's not be under any illusion. It is a battle for the hearts and minds of a generation. It's a battle for intellectual identity and emotional identity. How we think and how we feel. And how we think and how we feel about who and what we are. And Paul says, as a Christian, these two aspects of your identity are equally crucial. Set your hearts on things above and set your minds on things above. So what are these things above that we are to set our hearts and minds on? Well, this is where people get into all sorts of, um, all, all sorts of, of, of deep water. Uh, these are not airy-fairy things. Some kind of existential cosmic experience. As some teachers in the early church in Colossae were proposing, some higher life, some extra experience that takes you from the Europa League to the Champions League. No. 
These things above are really another way of saying Christ himself. All he is and all he has done. And what he's already told us, you have him. Yeah, we've seen that and we're linked to him. We're joined to him. We've already seen that. And what Paul wants us to know is that 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 is enough. Way more than enough. That's all we'll ever need. Ever need. Christ is all we need. We sometimes sing that song, don't we? You are my all in all. I wonder if that's true for you this morning. Can you see how glorious this is? Can you see what Christ has done for you? Can you see that, that he's everything? And that setting your heart on things above isn't some kind of going and sitting on top of a pole and meditating into some kind of strange tantric state. It's, it, it's nothing, nothing like that. It's about getting to know Jesus. End of getting to know Jesus here and now. As a real life human being, loving him, living for him, talking about him, chilling with him, singing to him, listening to him, speaking to you through his word. It's all about Jesus. That is it. Christianity is not some kind of weird mystical thing. It's all about Jesus. The clues in the title, Christianity. So as soon as you see that your identity as a Christian is not bound up in a whole set of rules to obey... And that it's about knowing and loving Jesus. As soon as you see that you final, as soon as you see that you've finally understood the gospel, you have finally understood what it means to be loved unconditionally. And once you understand that, it throws everything else in your life into a different focus, because this is what you're looking for. You two sang years ago. I still haven't found what I'm looking for, but this, this is what we're looking for. This is our identity. This is for what we were made. And when we discover it, when we realise this is our identity, how does it affect our lives? What are the implications of our Christian identity? Friends, many professing Christian people continue to live lives of self-loathing. They really hate themselves. They live as slaves Slaves to guilt from the past. Slaves to parental expectations, sometimes people's approval. Slaves to the need to control everything. And we could list a whole load of other things. I wonder if you're in some of those categories or if you could fill in your own. What's making you a slave this morning? Your hearts and your minds are a, and your identity, therefore, are linked to and determined by and shaped by something other than Jesus. But simply waking up one day and saying, right, David, I get what you're saying. See, tomorrow morning I'm going to get, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get this right. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be controlled by these things. I'm going to find my identity in other things. I'm going to try harder. Save yourself the effort. It won't work. And you know it won't work because you've tried that hundreds of times, as we used to say in Les Mahigo. So what is the answer then? Well, Thomas Chalmers, the famous Scottish minister, put it this way. The heart's desire for one particular object is unconquerable. We are obsessive creatures. 
And the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. In other words, if you want to get rid of how you used to think, you need to replace how you used to think with something that you love more than what determined how you thought in the past. So you need to think, you need to love something more because we think about the things we love. We think about the things we love. Why do you think it is that, and I told you earlier, I worked in the NHS for 39 years, so we've done a lot of patient engagement stuff. That became fashionable for a while, you know. You've got to have a patient involved. Ask the patients what they want. Ask the patients what's important to them. Number one thing that's important to anybody you ask what's important to you, they'll say family. Why? Because it's about love. It's about relationship. That's what we're made for. But the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Colleagues, if we love our families more than we love the Lord Jesus, then we're being, we're being idolaters. That's been a big challenge for me, bringing up two kids. You know, do I base my whole life around my children? Do I move my house to accommodate them? Do I move everything around my life so that they are the little mini-gods in my world? These are challenges, folks. Or do I trust them to Jesus? So, this is radical stuff. You can't experience and enjoy your true identity simply by trying to behave in a different way. You need to replace what you're thinking about and what you love with something that you love more and something you trust more. Something you grasp with your minds that rivets and captures your heart. And as young people, to capture your heart and your mind at this stage in your life and bolt it to Jesus for the rest of your life. Do you see how radical this is? There's a truth you have to set your mind on. You've been raised with Christ. And then it's that truth that you bring into your heart. And you know, folks, that truth will break your heart if you really grasp it. You have been raised with Christ. I, you, with all your mess and your sin and your selfishness and your rebellion and your obsessions and your addictions that nobody else knows about, you have been raised with Christ. Because it's so unbelievable that somebody like me could be raised with Christ in the light of how sinful we know ourselves to be. That we don't really believe it and that's why we never live in the fullness of it. You see, that's why our identity is always compromised. And what this means is if you give yourself to Jesus Christ, God delights in you as much as he does in his own son. So you won't wake up in the morning thinking, I am a toxic failure like I did for years. You will waken up saying, I am a dearly loved child of God. And it's impossible to ever find rest in anything else you look for to define your identity. Approval? You'll never get enough. Relationships? They'll never satisfy you properly. Parental expectations, you'll never fully achieve them. Money, power, sexual experience, these things that we need to get a sense of self-worth, they will never provide us with our true identity as a Christian. Instead, what they will do is they will drive us to anxiety. Indeed, they will drive you to either secret or open addiction. Because the heart's desire for one particular object is unconquerable. In the gospel, God, through Jesus Christ, gives us a perfect record and delights in us in Christ. And then we live for him in gratitude and love. That's your new identity. 
So how do you set your heart on that? Well, it means that you think of nothing and no one greater than Jesus and love nothing and no one greater than Jesus. Because anything less than that, as I said earlier, is idolatry. And Paul knows that the real solution here is worship of Christ. Think of no one higher than Christ and love no one more than Christ. And Paul says, to do that, you need to go back into what Jesus has done for you. Go back into the story. And you're there, remember? You died with Christ. He's doing that for you. If you saw an artist, Tim Keller tells this story really well. If you saw an artist who'd done a beautiful sculptor, and then a bulldozer is going to come and destroy it, and that artist throws himself in front of the bulldozer to try to protect the statue that he has given his, that, that, that he has created, that he loves. You, you, he would rather die than have that sculpture destroyed. You would say, well, obviously if he's willing to die for that creation, then that must have been his life. If he's prepared to give his life for it, it must have been his life. And that is exactly what Jesus has done for us, do you see? We are his workmanship. We're his sculptor, if you want to put it that way. We've been created in order to bring him glory. And he will do anything to protect us. He was willing to die for us to make us his own. You are his life. He loves you. And then Paul says, don't just go back in the story, go forward in the story. And you're there too, as we've already seen. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. That's the Revelation 7 text. You've been seen there already. And when that moves you, when you see Jesus doing that for you, when you see yourself as part of his story, as part of this story, it changes your heart. You can't be the same person anymore. Your response to the word of God is that your heart is broken but will be a response born of grace rather than duty and guilt, do you see? Because we'll never sustain that. Any response this morning that you make to this message or to God's word to you this morning, any response that lasts will be a response of grace and gratitude and love, not out of duty and, well, I better do better tomorrow. None of that. Just get back in love with Jesus. There's a type of movie, here's another big phrase to finish with, there's a type of movie called a metaphysical second chance narrative. Now you might not know it as that, but it's Groundhog Day. Or uh, Wonderful Life at Christmas time. We're coming up to Christmas, everybody likes Jimmy Stewart and Wonderful Life. Or even Dickens' Christmas Carol actually is a form of a metaphysical second chance narrative. Now what is a metaphysical second chance narrative? It's the kind of story in which the laws of time and space are bent to give the characters access to self-knowledge so that they can transform themselves to become better people. Yeah? So that by the end of the movie, the people are better people than they were at the beginning of the movie. The movie, thank Ebenezer Scrooge. Guess what? The gospel is telling you that your life can become a metaphysical second chance narrative because God, because this isn't a fairy story, God has bent literally the rules of space and time by sending Christ into the world in order to bring you a knowledge and a power about yourself that you would never otherwise have. And he gives you every moment of your life every moment to start again 
as a gift of grace. Every moment. Every moment. Why? So that you can become not a better Ebenezer Scrooge, but so you can become more and more conformed to his glory. So that you can become a different person. You can become a Christian. Jesus is your life. So, Paul says, get to know him. Love him. And in doing so, you will become who you really are. You will become the authentic version of you. You will become who he made you to be. Because he's your identity. And he is your destiny.